Welcome to the conversation on TYT. I'm Michael Shore, and today we're going to go to Tennessee and we're going to talk about in this era of social justice and protesting exactly what is happening by being sort of orchestrated by the people who don't love a protest. And we're going to go to Nashville now. Brandon Tucker is the policy director for the ACLU in Tennessee. Brandon, thanks for being on the Young Turks. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So, so tell me, I mean, in a nutshell, let's start out with the, the easy question here. What is going on? So it's sort of like by cover of dark in a, in a, in a session, the, the legislature there passed some laws um, and, and these laws are anti-protest laws. That's uh, precisely it. Uh, what's happening here was the same thing that's happening across the country. Uh, we bore witness to uh, injustices displayed on on television, uh, videos of black men being brutalized and and killed uh, in the streets at the hands of law enforcement, and um, Tennesseans here in Nashville and Memphis and all throughout the state took to the streets, and uh, they were exercising their right to uh, voice their position and advocate for change, and in response, uh, rather than hearing the message of the protesters. Uh, rather than trying to dig deeper to identify why so many tens of thousands of Tennesseans were taken to the streets, uh, our legislature decided to criminalize uh, these acts. Um, there, there was, I believe, there's this belief that um, they're looking tough um, on protesters. There's this mood um, happening throughout the country about getting tough on protesters. Uh, but what would have been strength was engaging in trying to reform our systems. Uh, but instead, uh, they chose to criminalize um, these acts, and I, you know, it, it showed uh, it showed weakness in my opinion. Well, it's not just criminal either. I mean, if you think about it, they're treating them as a felony, and they're also saying that cash bail—they're not dealing properly with bail. So you get arrested. This guarantees that just for protesting, you're going to spend some time in jail, and then you're going to have to appeal to get your right to vote back. The way I look at this thing, and and tell me if I'm wrong, but this seems like it's an orchestrated move for precisely a number of those reasons. Uh, you're spot on. The unintended consequences here are immense. Um, you you mentioned the mandatory minimums. You mentioned bail. Uh, but you know, if if people are arrested for these offenses that are commonly associated with protest, there's a mandatory 12-hour hold. Um, that that's a pre-conviction punishment that is typically reserved for those who are arrested on charges of domestic violence. And so the ripple effects are unseen, but they will have a negative impact. If someone is required to spend 12 hours in a jail cell, what if they have a child to to care for back at home? What if they have a job to get to in the morning? Our unhoused community, they're saying if you're sleeping on state property, you are, you're immediately taken in for a 12 hour hold. You have a mandatory minimum that you will have to serve if found guilty. You have an exorbitant fine that you'll have to pay. And virtually they're saying fine, Individuals' private property to sleep on. So the this thing was hastily rushed through. It was not thought through. There were reservations stated by legislators who voted for this, and it's just unacceptable. 
And it's also dripping with hypocrisy, even if the hypocrisy is 20 years old. Because if you look back in Tennessee history, you'll see when Don Sunquist was governor, a Democrat, the beginning of the 2000s, there was a, a vote passed about uh, you know that they were trying to increase taxes. Republicans and Tea Partiers descended upon Nashville, created this whole wave of protest. But the Democratic governor at the time, Don Sunquist, and the Democratic led uh, senators that were there, they didn't do laws like this. They allowed the protest to continue. And it really was the rise of, of Marsha Blackburn, who's now one of the two senators from your state. What is the difference between, uh, you know, what, let's say Bill Lee, who's the governor of Tennessee right now, how he's treating this type of protest versus how protest was treated when it was on the other foot? I, I think when you stated um, the hypocrisy, uh, it, it's so it's so blatant. I mean, just over a month ago, uh, our governor ordered the flags to be lowered to commemorate the life of John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis. Um, his life and his protest and his service to our country is now celebrated. And in the spirit of Congressman John Lewis, We've had young people and old in the streets advocating for change, advocating for racial equity, racial justice, and reform to how we are policed. And they have completely missed the mark on being leaders in this space and hearing the protesters out. Not once have they have they come together to put together legislation or put together a commission to deal with what the protesters are actually protesting about. Instead, they have they are suppressing speech, chilling speech, and shutting down nonviolent protest. And so the hypocrisy is there, and it couldn't be more evident in how certain protesters are, are, are treated versus others who are advocating for, for, for change and for racial justice. Yeah, and it's 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 more than just ironic that that John Lewis began his studying at the Highlander Folk School there, which was basically learning how to protest peacefully. Mm -hmm. And then in that same state where Highlander is, you have a governor and a legislature doing these things. Okay, we know the problem now, Brandon. Tell me what the ACLU is doing. Tell us what some of the remedy is for this. Yeah. Um, Look, we have a legal department here at the ACLU of Tennessee that is not shy um, to sue this governor. Um, and but we are working right now um, with our team and also our national ACLU attorneys to find out if there's any possibility to file suit. Uh, but to go back to what I mentioned earlier, don't uh, the the governor who signed this piece of legislation said he would do it differently. We had legislators on the committee who said, let's not, let's take a step back here and maybe send this to a summer study because I don't wanna be acting out of emotions. We've had state senators who feel uneasy yet still voted for the enhancement on all these penalties and making individuals who are expressing their right receive a felony conviction on their record. And so, with the policy department and our charge going into the next session, we think that there could be a path to repeal aspects of this law. It's not helpful, it hurts communities, it is chilling free speech, and it's an outsized response to 
you know, a, a group of young people who were calling for a meeting from the governor. Yeah, I don't understand how, and and you may know because you work for uh, for uh, you know some uh, uh, an organization that is steeped in legal knowledge. But I don't understand how this is does not fly in the face of some of the easiest tenets of the Constitution, from free speech to free association. Uh, and I don't see how this would stand up. This wasn't really legislated in the real sense of the word. This was just sort of rammed down the throats of the people of Tennessee, right? I mean, so so there has to be some sort of uh, court recourse that you guys have, right? We, we hope so. Um, but again, we have to see how uh, this, this law is effectuated. How it's implemented, uh, but it's not off the table. And again, our, our, our legal department is working with a, a host of um, attorneys to figure out if there's an opportunity to challenge this law. Has there been backlash to any of the senators? I mean, it's, I, I, if, if you go through some of the uh, editorials as I did in preparing, you see that I, I didn't see one newspaper that really supported this, or I was looking in the wrong places. But the Tennessean, a number of them just came right at the the state senate for doing this. Is is the fact that this is not terribly popular resonating at all, or is it unfortunately popular? I, I think we have to make the case, right? I, we 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 live in a, a more conservative state, um, but we value our, our our right to protest. We value free speech, and so I think we need to take off the table what the protesters were saying, and if some may disagree with it, but all come together and agree that we have the right to say it. Um, and so yes, you're 100% right. This legislation was rammed through. They called an extraordinary session to deal with. Protesters, not to deal with why people were protesting, but they wanted to ensure that they could criminalize and get individuals off the streets because they disagreed in the manner of which these people were protesting. And so that that's that's our charge. We need to make the case that no matter if you disagree with the message, you should not disagree with anyone's ability to express themselves. Fascinating. I mean, and you put it so succinctly. I and mean, this is exactly what it is. There's something that these people are protesting, but the people in power are not looking at what's being protested, but just the fact that it's being protested at all. All right. So I really appreciate the time, Brandon Tucker's with the ACLU of Tennessee. Good luck to you. Thanks for spending time. Go Bulldogs. And <laughs> we'll see you on the other side. Welcome to the conversation. I'm Michael Shore on TYT. Today we are talking to a young progressive who left medical school, took a leap of absence, didn't leave it forever. Why did he do it? To run for Congress. Solomon Rajput ran against. This is how old the Dingle name is in Michigan. Debbie Dingle is the Congresswoman. John Dingle was in Congress. Before I was born, that's how old they are. And but but Salman Rajput went out there with a progressive agenda. Didn't win in August in the primary because it's very difficult to beat a Dingle in Michigan. But the message is out there, and and now what he's doing is is starting a group, or he has started a group called Done Waiting, and we're here to hear about what they're done waiting for. Salman, welcome to the conversation. Michael, so great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So, first of all, you know, one of my closest friends in the world lost a congressional race out here in California. You may have heard of him this year. 
<laughs> and, and you've lost one, but being in the arena, as they say, pretty important. Winning better, being in the arena is pretty good. What's your, quickly, your takeaway from that race and what you learned, not just about you, but about what, how politics works in Michigan and in America? Yeah, it's really, really interesting. So um, we didn't win the election, which was definitely not our preferred outcome. <laughs> but we are really grateful that we won the hearts of 25,000 voters across the district. We made over 300,000 calls, sent over 400,000 texts. And what I really learned from this race is that there is so much untapped progressive energy in this country. We have so many young people in this country who want to get involved in politics, who want to get involved in championing progressive issues. And actually, in our campaign, we're really grateful that we had that we had over 400 interns and fellows who were spending you know, anywhere from eight to 15 hours a week, every single week working on our campaign. So the, the, um, the desire for the progressive agenda is there, it's palpable, it's national. Um, and we just need to tap into that energy uh, in order to be able to help get um, progressives elected in a big way. And that's kind of what our organization is gonna be focused on. That's great. And let, let's talk about the race quickly because let's yeah. keep it real. I'm, I'm interested in this stuff. Yeah, um, when, when you, you know, when you ran, uh, you knew the hill was was yeah. steep because of the Dingle name, and and because I don't think there's a great deal of animosity towards uh, Debbie Dingle um, in in terms of uh, the 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 woman, except from the president who seems yeah. to have. What was the what was the dynamic like in running for such an against an established candidate, congressperson name in that state? It was really, really interesting because um, you know, Congresswoman Ningle, we harbor you know no ill will towards her. We never did this entire time, right? Like, there's not this. Uh, there's definitely not this animosity. Um, and our campaign overall was very cordial, very civil. Um, it was really just a campaign about ideas and about policy, and so. Uh, you know, our district is very progressive. Um, you know, in 2016, Bernie Sanders carried this district um, handedly. The in the governor's race in 2018, the progressive candidates took the majority of the of the vote share. So in this congressional district, so this for us was really a campaign about ideas about progressive policies. Um, and so we would always say, you know, Congresswoman Dingell is a perfectly nice person, but she's not a progressive. Um, and that message resonated with a lot of people. But what we what we um, did discover is that there are a lot of uh, groups in particular, like progressive groups that um, were very aligned with our agenda. You know, everything that we wanted is what they profess to want. But um, they were just really scared of wanting to enter this race because uh, the Dingle name is the Longest American political dynasty in United States history. So, so you know, there were a lot of people who, um, you know, we were kind of thinking would be allies, uh, and and unfortunately, we found that they were uh, um, scared of essentially the establishment and did not want to participate in the race. So, which is something that also we can talk about a little later, but something that we want our group to not <laughs> end up doing. Uh, well, well, that's interesting, and I think that that's an important uh, part of all of this is to you know. There are a lot of people, some of your most progressive friends and family in Ann Arbor, if you have any of them, and certainly friends, um, their families have been voting for Dingles forever, and they could be the most progressive people you know. So it's also changing habit as well as changing, uh, you know, the, the changing the the players there. But Absolutely. let's talk. Let, let's talk about done waiting. I mean. Um, 
you came out of this campaign and you know a lot of losing candidates and I say this frequently will will speak to their supporters and say well we made a difference and this skeptical reporter in the back of the room will say oh, no you didn't yeah. um, but but you did and now you're taking that difference and you've got it uh, all that energy channeled into your group done waiting tell us a little bit about how it works and what its goals are yeah so with done waiting right essentially what we saw is that with an army of about 400 people from across the country, you know, in a couple dozen different states, we were able to give the establishment a huge run for their money, right? I mean, our campaign raised, you know, about like $150,000. Congresswoman Dingle spent over around $1.2 million to like stop our grassroots rebellion. And we still ended up taking about 20% of the vote. So if we're able to get able to create this much people power with you know just like 400 people imagine what we could do if we had thousands of people um and if we had an on demand army that could help progressives get elected across the country i mean right now if you're going up against the establishment you um have such little time you have very few resources, right? Like the establishment has all of the money, they've got all of the connections, they're taking the corporate money that we don't want any part of, right? So how can we possibly compete? The only way we can compete is through the power of people. But as um, anyone who's run a campaign knows, it is very, very challenging to build an enormous field program, an enormous volunteer program in order to be able to combat the power of the establishment. There were so many great candidates all across this country um, that would be phenomenal in Congress, but are not able to kind of build up that people power. So what if we were able to tell them, we can give you an army of people. You know, If you get our endorsement, if you're supporting the right policies, if you seem like you have a shot of winning, we can make tens or hundreds of thousands of calls for you. We can dedicate hundreds of people to your campaign in order to help you win. So rather than having every single campaign across the country try to from scratch, learn how to become an organizer and make these huge, robust field structures. What if we centralized that process and gave it to people in order to get them, to, in order to help them win? And then in off-season elections, um, pressure centrists so that uh, we can actually bend the establishment to the will of the people. So that's what we are. We're an army of young people who are going to do all of that. It's it's amazing. I hear, how do you make a couple of things? One is how do you go to medical school uh, and do that? Because that seems like a life's commitment uh, on on the one hand, yeah. and and also you want to be a doctor. So there's a lot going on in in Solomon Rajput's life. How do you do that? But also the the follow up to that is how do you make done waiting indispensable for Democratic candidates, uh, whether they are you know what what you call establishment or progressive or grassroots? How do you make your group indispensable? Is it sheer numbers? Is it intransigence? I'll let you answer. Absolutely. So actually, uh, your questions are pretty related because. Um, you know, I am a medical student right now, and thankfully, I've you know been able to kind of ease back into school. But classes are about to get really intense in a couple of weeks, and so there's only way for um, anyone to participate in a long-term movement, uh, especially when it's not like your job and you're not getting paid. Because everyone on our uh, in our organization, you know, the hundreds of people that are in our in our organization are volunteers. You need to have an enormous team. You need to have a very robust team where no one is expected to contribute um, an extraordinary amount of time. So all of us are you know, only trying to spend um, max 10 or 12 hours every single week working on this organization. But um, which is essentially kind of how we ran our campaign. But if you have so many people who are working in close coordination, you know, spending eight to 12 hours every single week um, in a very a systematic centralized structure, then you can actually like make an enormous impact. And so that's kind of the goal. Um, and so for me, you know, my role as uh, the chair of Dunn Waiting will be 
to be the face of it, to really you know create lots of uh, um, compelling content to make people want to join our organization and apply to be like interns and fellows, which is really like we're going to create this big army. Um, and so the way that we're going to be invaluable, well, first of all, we're only electing progressives. We're only like going to endorse progressives. You have to meet certain criteria for us. You have to be supporting the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, College for All, getting big money out of a political system, the Black Lives Matter movement, and the struggle for racial justice in the country. So um, if you know. Uh, if you um, let me just ask you all or nothing on that. If you're all of those things, but you're not for the Green New Deal, uh, then you don't get your endorsement. You have to sort of check off every box. Yeah, so you have to check off all of those boxes. And like you know, as we know, there are so many other uh, issues out there that there are is a progressive stance on. Um, for those other issues, you know, those are, those are areas that we can be um, understanding of. You know, a particular district uh, makeup and. Potentially, yeah. we would want to, you know, um, acknowledge that a district might not be ready for a certain uh, stance on a particular issue. But those five issues are non-negotiable. Um, you know, we're only interested in electing progressives, and um, for us to be able to be invaluable is that uh, is because of, is the resource that we're offering people, right? If we're saying, you know, if we make a hundred thousand calls or two hundred thousand calls for a race, you know, that's potentially like tens of thousands of votes, and um, People and we're you know doing this totally for free because we want to make sure that this is something that uh, we do in order to help get progressives elected because this is part of the progressive movement. So we're offering this free resource to people uh, to campaigns, um, and if they're able to get our endorsement, we would love to you know provide it for them so that they can win and so that we can make this movement successful, the progressive movement across the country. And in a way, you're supplanting the need for the corporate money because you're delivering the votes. By delivering the actual votes and not doing it because you're getting paid to do it, right. Solomon Rushford, really fascinating stuff. You know, I admire the uphill battle that you entered. I admire, and by that I mean medical school. Jeez, <laughs> yeah, exactly. but also the congressional race. Really look forward to hearing what Dunwading is going to is going to accomplish. And I guess we'll know that probably in 2022 when we see some of those midterm congressional and maybe Senate elections with with candidates. Who have supported have been supported by Dunn Wade. This is the conversation on TYT. Thank you.